Jude. If you look in your pew Bibles, it is on page 1027. Please stand for the reading of his word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about the common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for condemnation. Ungodly people who convert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand indistinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perish in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your, at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom, the glory, from whom the glory of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also that these, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own desi sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our, apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cast, cause divisions, worldly, worldly people devoid of spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. 
to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory, of his glory and great joy. To God, to to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me lead us in another prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And now as we seek to hear you proclaim it to our ears and to our hearts, we pray for your name to be lifted high and for your church to be edified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's Jordan to introduce to you guys a new mini-series that we're going to be going through this month. It's called Short and Sweet. A brief study of the shortest books in the New Testament. This is going to be a four-part series. Uh, and we're going to be going over Philemon, Second and Third John, and this morning, the book of Jude. We've been in the Old Testament for a while in the past few months. Uh, we've been going through Exodus. Recently, we just went through Jonah. We're going to pick up the second half of Exodus after this series. So we just wanted to take a, a short break and, and study these these short books that we, let's be honest, we, we tend to overlook. Uh, they may be small, but I would argue that each of them contain a message about a great gospel by a great God. And so our hope is that these little books that do pack a big punch, that they will be used by God to make an impact on us, to make an impact on our, our spiritual lives. So this morning, we're going to be in Jude. Now, this is a book that I think will, will get you history buffs out there very excited. So if, if you are someone that, that loves studying history, if you are a strong proponent in learning from history, then I think you're going to resonate with Jude. At the Dachau concentration camp over in uh, nearby Munich, Germany, there's a museum now that is there to preserve the memory of the horror that took place there during World War II. Uh, you know, there were around 32,000 documented deaths at the camp, and there were probably thousands more that were undocumented. undocumented. Well, there's a sign when you are uh, leaving the, um, the museum for, for visitors to, to see as they leave, and the sign reads, those who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat its mistakes. I would argue that that's a statement that, that, that Jude would completely agree with. Those who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat its, are, are condemned to repeat its mistakes. Here in this book, you're going to see this refrain about remembering. We're called to remember the faith that was once handed down. We're called to remember events in Old Testament history and in Jewish tradition. If you look in verse 5, and then later on verse 17, we're called to remember the predictions of the apostles. 
And so they're, they're here, here in this little book, there, there are going to be so many references you'll see to Old Testament stories and to other events in the past. Uh, some of them are, are fascinating. Some of them are strange. You know, for, for some of these events, we're not sure if Jude saw them as actual history or just as a good illustration for his message. But regardless, remembering history and learning from history comes across in this little book. And the reason for all of this, the reason for all this remembering is clear from the beginning of Jude. He tells his readers the exact purpose for why he's writing. If you look with me in verse 3, he says that although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, so, so he's telling us that his initial intent for reaching out to these Christians, um, context will suggest to us that they were all part of a particular church. It, it goes unidentified, but uh, likely this is to a church. And he's reaching out to them initially because he wanted to talk about their common salvation in Christ. Maybe he was planning on, on writing a, a theological treatise to, to, to rival the book of Romans. He just wanted to talk about um, just doctrine and just glory and that. But then he heard news that certain people have crept into the membership of this church and they were threatening the body with unsound, unhealthy, false teaching. And so keep reading with me the, uh, the rest of verse 3. Um, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So this is now the purpose, to contend for the faith. Because there are those in the church threatening the faith, compromising the faith, denying the faith. And he's telling the church that it is every believer's responsibility to contend. It's not just for pastors to do. It's not just for elders and Sunday school teachers. Every member's job is to contend for the faith. And that's going to require not just learning good theology, but learning from history to avoid repeating the same falsehoods that are found in our history. So to help us walk through this, this little book of Jude, I've divided uh, this message into three sections. I, I see three sections here in this book. Uh, if you want to follow along, look in your bulletin, you'll see an outline, and the three sections are listed there. The first uh, is in verses 1 to 4. And we're going to focus here on contending with false teachers. And then the focus in verses 5 all the way to 16 is on identifying the false teachers. And then lastly, the focus in verses 17 to 25 is on how we respond to false teaching, particularly in the church. So let's focus first on contending with false teachers. And we're going to cover, like I said, verses 1 to 4. Now, verses 1 to 2 is uh, the introduction of the letter, and we learn here that this is written by Jude, um, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, commentators tell us that this James most likely is none other than the James who wrote the book of James, who uh, we know um, is, the, uh, is the stepbrother of Jesus. So Mary and Joseph had other biological children after Jesus uh, and the whole Christmas story. And so Jude, just like James, is a stepbrother to Jesus. But notice, but notice how a brother 
of the Lord Jesus Christ still preferred in writing this letter to identify himself as a servant of Christ. Uh, that literal word is doulos, which, which means slave. So more literally, he sees himself as a slave of Christ. He could have just thrown his weight around, right? He could have, he could have you know, started this letter off by saying, you know who I am? Do you know who my brother is? Listen to me, right? No, but instead he humbly saw himself as Jesus' servant. And he appealed to this church out of that identity. I think that, that is significant. Now, now, what is he asking for them to do? Well, we already saw this in verse 3. He's asking for them to contend for the faith. Now, consider with me three observations. First, notice that there is a faith to contend for. There's a faith to contend for. The faith in verse 3 could be understood, if you, if, if you will, as just shorthand for the Christian faith. So, contend for Christianity. But I think more specifically, it's referring to the apostolic faith, to the teaching of the apostles, the teaching that is captured for us and found in Holy Scripture, specifically in the New Testament writings, and summarized for us in ancient creeds like the Apostle Creed that we just recited earlier. Those doctrines uh, pertaining to the nature of the triune God who is one God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're we're talking about doctrines related to the person and work of the Son of God, of of Christ Jesus, and the person and work of the Holy Spirit as the third person. Uh, We're talking about doctrines related to the way of salvation and and the the coming judgment and, and the return of Christ. If you deny these doctrines, you deny the faith. Now, notice as well with me in verse 3 that this particular body of teaching, this apostolic faith, was delivered once for all. That phrase there, once for all, is implying that there is no new revelation to be given to us. No prophet, no preacher or teacher can add to the apostolic faith or change, or modify the faith. It was entrusted to the saints in its final form, once for all. That's what that phrase is suggesting. So there's a faith to contend for. Secondly, recognize that that faith is always under attack. It's always under threat. From the early days of its establishment, the church has faced attacks. And and the most harmful of those attacks didn't come from the outside. It didn't come from Caesar. It didn't come from external persecution. No, it came from false teachers leading people astray through falsehoods. The church is called to contend for the faith. Now, that word there, contend, in the original, it, it, it really sounds like the word that we use for, for agonize, to agonize for the faith. It conveys the image of an athlete who is straining and struggling and exerting every effort in his or her bones to win. As one lexicon puts it, the word suggests effort expended in a noble cause. And so that, that, that's key there because Let's just be clear, when the Word of God calls us to contend for the faith, this is a call 
to an agonizing struggle to win, but for a noble cause. So it's not here to win an argument. Like We're not here just to prove a theological point and win that debate. To contend for the faith is to expend every effort in a noble cause to win souls. To win souls from the clutches of false teaching. We want to win people back from falsehood to the life-giving truth of God. We care about people. We care about souls, not just winning arguments. That's why we contend. Thirdly, notice in verse 4 how the falsehoods that Jude was dealing with are serious because they promote a license to sin and a denial of Jesus' lordship. They promote a license to sin and they deny Jesus' lordship. Look at verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, friends, I'm sure that there are some false teachers who, with very wicked intention, have have snuck into the church and overtly try to pervert God's grace and outright deny the lordship of Christ. I'm sure there are people like that. But I think throughout the history of the church, these kinds of false teachers are the minority. The usual suspects didn't come to to a church with the intent to tear it apart from the inside out. No, they're usually individuals who are actually appointed by churches to to be the leader, to, to be teachers, and their heart is to help. They they see Christians burdened by their sin, carrying around a heavy conscious conscience laden with guilt and shame. The, the law of God just seems to demand too much on these people. Or they, they, they see non-believers just repulsed by, by the moral teachings that they find in Scripture. The Bible just seems to these people to be, to be cruel and, and, and unloving, and so they want nothing to do with the faith. And that weighs very heavy on these certain teachers. They want to help people, whether inside or outside the church. And so their solution is to begin reinterpreting the scriptures and modifying their theology. They, they begin to loosen the law's demands. They begin to teach a new interpretation of certain passages that really has the net effect of abrogating the moral imperatives in those passages. They say things like, you know, I, I, I know the passage says that you shall not do that, or I, I, I know that, that this kind of behavior, it says here, is an abomination to the Lord, but you know that was written to an ancient people from a totally different time period living in a totally different culture, so it doesn't apply to us anymore. It doesn't apply to the church today. That's how it's often argued. Or, Some teachers will see people burdened by their sin and they will try to assuage their guilty consciences by a misapplication of the gospel of grace. So a man living in unrepentant sin at peace 
with a pattern of sin in his life, he's told that God loves him and isn't angry with him no matter what he does. As long as he's made some faith decision in the past, well then, he's okay with God. And that's what he's assured with. And that is what it means to pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, to give someone license to continue sinning. You know, that kind of error is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer described as offering people cheap grace. This is how he defined cheap grace. Listen to Bonhoeffer. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. If our preaching and teaching of the gospel of grace encourages or merely enables others to live comfortably with unrepentant sin in their lives, if it gives them a license to sin, then we are giving them cheap grace. And we have perverted the grace of God into sensuality. These certain teachers, if you think about it, they were essentially tucking people in after they've crawled into bed with unrighteousness. And they were whispering in their ears, peace, peace, when there is no peace. There is no peace with God until we are born again and forgiven through the gospel of genuine grace. If cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, then genuine gospel grace is the preaching of forgiveness through repentance and faith, which really are two sides of the same coin. Imagine with me that we're at war with God, which you know, really shouldn't be too hard to imagine because that's how the Bible describes us. In our sinful state, apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. Now, in spite of, of this war being so bitter and so, so, so long drawn out and so one-sided because really we have no chance of defeating God, the good news is that he's offering peace. We can have peace with God. But friends, how this peace is offered is going to make a world of difference. Now, God could offer us peace. He could offer us peace at the right price, right? He, 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 could, he could say, I'll give you peace, but you need to pay for it. Some amount of money, some amount of service to me, some amount of devotion to me. You just accept the cost, and there's peace. But what if, what if? God offered his enemies peace out of sheer, genuine grace. There's no price. There's no payment. But as a result of receiving his peace, you're going to have to lay down your weapons. You're going to have to pledge full allegiance to your king. There's, there's no price, but there's still a cost. 
continue to see there, there's a difference there. You see, in the first scenario I described, it's what you would consider a cost of purchase. You're buying that piece. But in the second scenario, it's a cost of surrender. It's a genuine cost. A different kind of cost, but a cost of surrender. And it makes a world of difference. The difference is really what lies at the heart of the gospel. The good news of Christianity is that our salvation was purchased in full by another. Jesus paid it all. That's our gospel. With his own life, he paid it. He died, and then he rose again, demonstrating that God accepted his payment in our place. That's why we say that salvation is free in Christ. It's without cost. That is, it's without cost of purchase on our part. But then, friends, but then, having freely received salvation in Christ, we're commanded now to cast down our crowns, to cast down our claim to self-rule, and now to humbly follow a new master and Lord. This is what I'm talking about. This is the cost of surrender. King Jesus demands full control over all of my decisions, full authority over all of my relationships, full mastery over all of my money, full lordship over all of my life. These false teachers in Jude's day were teaching people cheap grace, grace that didn't include a cost of surrender. And so their followers, they still had their own crowns on their heads, and they were trying to negotiate peace terms with Jesus. They were like, like, like two opposing rulers trying to come up with a compromise. Okay, Jesus, I, I'll be your follower if I'll obey your commands. Well, so long as, and they're negotiating. They're still holding on to a degree of authority, and so there are limits to, to how much they'll give up. There are limits to how far they'll follow Jesus. They don't recognize Jesus' absolute lordship. Like Jude says in verse 3, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. But friends, King Jesus can't negotiate with him because he really has no needs that we can meet. And he could easily and justly crush us if he so wills. And so a free offer of peace, you've got to see that as extremely good news. And we have to realize we are in no place to make demands. We are in no place to draw limits. There is no negotiating with Jesus. There is only surrendering. Have you surrendered yourself to King Jesus? That's really the only option. That's the, that, that's the option that, that the Bible is calling us to. Surrender to King Jesus. Do so willingly, freely, and receive the abundance of his grace. Now, let me turn your eyes back to to, to uh, Jude, and specifically now to verses 5 to 16. And, and in this section, what I want to do is to focus on identifying 
these false teachers. This is really the most fascinating portion of the book, but it's also, it's the hardest to understand. His point in verses five to 16 is this. Um, His point is that having to contend with false teachers should surprise no one since their coming was predicted long ago and their presence in the church shouldn't ultimately worry anyone since their judgment was also predicted from long ago. We can be sure of a just and final judgment of the ungodly because of the way that God has operated in the past in Old Testament history. Jude is reminding us to learn from history. Now, in verses 5 to 7, Jude gives three examples of certain judgment for the ungodly. Three examples of certain judgment to come for those um, false teachers here and their followers. Notice how, notice how these three examples have in common the denial of lordship. So here in verses 5 to 7, uh, you see that these perpetrators, they left their proper positions, they left their proper spheres that were assigned to them by God according to the good design of his created order. And so Jude starts by bringing up the history of Israel in the book of Exodus. You, you, you know, you can be just very clear. You can clearly see here his his understanding of Jesus's divinity in the way that did you notice how he identifies Jesus with Yahweh? He identifies Jesus with the Great I Am who delivered Israel from the land of Egypt. I think that's that's that, that's that's an interesting connection he's making there. But his his point is that the Israelites were created to worship God. That's how God made them. But in the wilderness years, they rejected that order. They rejected that design, and they turned to idols. They denied Yahweh's lordship, and they were swiftly punished in the wilderness. Then Jude alludes to Genesis chapter 6 and to Jewish tradition in the way it interprets that chapter. Um, And the the tradition he's likely referring to uh, is to an episode that's described in a a non-canonical Jewish book. Non-canonical means it's just a book, uh, ancient book that's not found in the Bible, even though it was commonly known in Jewish literature. Uh, It was called First Enoch. And uh, that um, uh, book and that episode there is describing about how angels who left their proper position, their proper sphere of heaven, and they came to earth to have sexual relations with the daughters of man. Now, some of you are pretty familiar with the book of Genesis, and you're wondering, what? Did I just miss that? Where is that in Genesis? You don't remember reading uh, that anywhere. Well, let me read to you Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. It reads like this. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, Jewish tradition, especially as found in a book like First Enoch, interprets those sons of God's, sons of God there as angels. And I know to modern ears that all of that just sounds really hard to believe, but exegetically, it is a plausible interpretation. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, wait, wait, didn't Jesus teach that angels are asexual? So how is this possible? Well, yes, Matthew, um, Matthew 22, verse 30, does say 
that angels don't marry each other and have like baby angels. That's not like where the baby angels that you see, you know, uh, and all the drawings come from. It doesn't come from mama and daddy angels. Um, but when they do come to earth, which is taught throughout the scriptures that they come down to earth, they likely do take on real genuine human bodies. And so the idea that some could have sexual relations is plausible. Now, if, if you're wondering, okay, well, does that still happen today? Um, I, I think the whole point here of this imprisonment with eternal change is to suggest that God prevents such unions from occurring anymore. But the whole point here is that even angels, if they deny God's lordship, they deny the design that God has for them, will be punished as well, even angels. Now, the third story that Jude alludes to in verse 7 is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's found in Genesis chapter 19. Now, this reference is emphasizing the sin of the men of the city. Like the angels in Genesis 6, they left their proper position in God's created order, the way that God designed them, and they, as it says here, indulge in sexual immorality, and they pursued unnatural desire. They tried to commit homosexual acts against the heavenly visitors that came to them in Genesis 19. Now, even though Jude is comparing his opponents to these characters in Old Testament history, I don't think it means that Jude is necessarily accusing his opponents of desiring you know, either sex with angels or with those of the same sex. His point here is that anyone who disregards the Lord's authority and trespasses the good bounds of his created order will be judged. And he certainly thinks that's the case for his opponents. Look at verse 8. Yet in like manner, so he's comparing them, yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. And so here Jude is mentioning three sins for which his opponents deserve judgment. First, like those in the stories of Old Testament history, they're guilty of sexual sins. They defile the flesh. That's a term that's related in the Bible to sexual immorality. Second, like those in Old Testament history, they're guilty of rejecting lordship. They reject authority, it says there. They deny Jesus as master and Lord. And third, they're guilty of reviling angels. They blaspheme the glorious ones. Uh, And then in verse 9 to 10, Jude makes reference to a story from uh, a first century Jewish writing that's called the Assumption of Moses. Again, it's, it's, it's just one of these non-canonical works. And in the Assumption of, of Moses, this particular story is about a dispute over the body of Moses between the archangel Michael and the devil. Uh, and that's what's alluded to here in verse 9. Jude's point is really to set Michael apart in contrast to these false teachers, because it appears that these false teachers were so proud, they're so puffed up, that they were even willing to insult demons. But their pride is set in stark contrast to Michael, who, though being so noble of an angel, refrained himself from insulting the devil, and instead he, he, left, that, he left the job of judging and rebuking to the Lord. So this is, again, just demonstrating just the pride of these opponents. Now, in verse 11, 
Jude continues to describe their errors. Uh, he says they walk in the way of Cain. That's Cain and Abel here. And he's referring to maybe not necessarily murder, but just the example that Cain set in sin and envy. Then he compares them to Balaam's heir, which refers to the prophet that we find in Numbers chapter 22, who was driven and motivated by the love of money. And he compares them to Korah's rebellion, which uh, Korah was the priest in Numbers chapter 16, who rebelled against authority. This, in this case, the authority of Moses and Aaron. And if you keep your eyes there in verses 12 to 13, if you look there, you'll see the dangers that these false teachers are posing to the church. Jude calls them hidden reefs at your love feasts. What does that mean? Well, these false teachers, they were sharing in the love feast, the agape feast. Uh, It's Basically, the meal that the church would eat together as part of their celebration of the Lord's Supper. So it would be like us taking the communion and immediately going having our church lunch right after. Like, like that love feast, that celebration meal. These certain teachers, they appeared, they were there on the surface. They, they looked like they were full of love, but like hidden reefs right below the surface of the water. They're full of errors, which, which these kind of errors could lead people to shipwreck their faith, and they don't even see it coming. Jude goes on to list five more metaphors to describe the danger they pose. They're bad shepherds, only interested in feeding themselves, gorging themselves instead of feeding sheep. They're waterless clouds that promise much but deliver little. They're fruitless trees in late autumn. It's so late in the season, and there's still no fruit. And by their fruit, or lack thereof, you shall know them. They're bad trees. Or they're wild waves washing up nothing of value, but just the grimy sea foam of their own shame. And Lastly, they're described as wandering stars. You know, ancients didn't know the the difference between stars and planets, right? They didn't have telescopes yet to really be able to, to see. So the wandering stars are most likely referring to planets that quote unquote wander in the night sky, which made them unreliable guides if you're trying to navigate by them. And so these teachers are being described as unreliable guides. Now, the point of verses 14 to 16 is to reinforce the main idea of this particular section, that judgment is coming. Be assured, judgment is coming, especially for these false teachers. And why is that? Why can we be assured of that? It's because it was prophesied in the past. And now this is where Jude turns to to a source, and he quotes a source that's that's interesting. Uh, he, He cites Another non-canonical source, well, it's, it's that first Enoch that I was um, uh, describing to you earlier. This is, this is a quote from first Enoch, and it's essentially a prophecy about the Lord coming with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment on the ungodly, whom Jude identifies with certain teachers that are threatening the faith. Now, I know that by having a biblical author quote 
from a non-biblical book and calling it a prophecy, I know it raises questions for us about the implications of him citing First Enoch. Did he think First Enoch was the inspired word of God? And if so, should we? Like, are we missing First Enoch in our Bible? What's going on? Well, I think it's plausible that Jude was citing one part of First Enoch that he believed to be true, but that doesn't necessitate the entire book being divinely inspired. You know, Paul, he quoted from Greek philosophers in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, in Titus chapter 1, verse 12, and it doesn't mean that he believed that those philosophers' books were inspired of God. So just because Jude appropriated certain truths from Jewish tradition doesn't imply agreement with everything in that tradition. Whether he believed these stories or these citations to be true, or if he saw them as fitting illustrations that are coming from a pool of literature common to his audience, his point here is to warn his readers that you need to take these false teachers seriously because judgment is coming. On one hand, that should sober you if you've been tolerating these false teachers and imbibing their falsehoods. But on the other hand, it should bring you comfort if you've been resisting these false teachers and contending for the faith. Keep going. Keep contending and trust that the Lord is coming to execute judgment. Until then, you contend. Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now let's conclude by looking at our very last section. This is in verses 17 to the end, to 25. And the focus is on responding to false teaching in the church. Here Jude shifts attention away from describing the false teachers and now he's talking directly to his readers. And not surprisingly, he tells them to remember something. He already told them to remember their history, to remember their traditions. Now he says to remember more recent teachings, to remember the apostles and their predictions about false teachers who were going to come into the church like wolves trying to attack the flock. The point is, be on guard for them. Now in verses 20 to 23, Jude is explaining how his readers can first minister to themselves and then to minister to those who are affected by the false teachers. His first word uh, is to uh, believers, and it's a command to, as he says here in verse 20, a command, or verse 21, to keep yourselves in the love of God. That right there, verse 21, is the primary command. Remain in God's love. Because if you're going to take up this task of contending for the faith, if you're going to engage and confront false teachers, you need to realize you're at risk here. You are at risk for falling for their falsehoods, or you could grow cold-hearted and and, and condescending towards these people. You could be mean and nasty in your contending. So to avoid these issues, risks, these dangers, you need to keep yourselves in the love of God. Now that command in verse 21, to keep yourself in the love of God, is surrounded by three other verbs describing how exactly you do that. So first, we keep ourselves in God's love by, verse 20, 
building ourselves up in our most holy faith. That means, that means every believer needs to grow to build himself or herself up in the understanding of the gospel, of the apostolic faith. And so this is an exercise you can do. Just think back to the Apostles' Creed that we just recited, or you, I mean, you can just easily Google it, and you can find the whole creed, and, and just look at it again and think about, are there any concepts here in this Apostles' Creed, if there are any concepts, any phrases that you, you couldn't defend with scriptural backing, then you should make it a goal this, this new year. Make it a resolution that, that, that you're going to build yourself up in the faith. Go after service and, and check out our bookstall in the fellowship hall or, or go look under the recommended books tab on our website and you can find good resources there. The, the goal, of course, is not just to, to fill your mind with theological ammunition for a debate. The goal, friends, of course, is to fill your heart with abounding love for God to to read and to study, to realize that such a holy God could love and save such unholy sinners like us. And second, we keep ourselves in God's love by praying in the Holy Spirit. Love for God that rests in God's love for us is a fire that cannot be maintained apart from a daily communion with God through prayer. So praying in the Spirit is like throwing another log on the fire. If you go, friends, if you go too long in seasons of prayerlessness, that love for God can easily extinguish. And third, we keep ourselves in God's love by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. If you take your eyes off of your future hope in Christ, then it is so easy for your love of God to wane right now here in the present. And so Christian, if you're going to contend for the faith, you're going to have to first minister to yourself. And then in verses 22 to 23, you can minister to those who are affected by false teaching. There are three groups of people that that Jude has in mind. First, have mercy on those who doubt. This is verse 22. These are, these are the people in the church who, who aren't heretics, who aren't even under the sway of false teachers, but they're struggling spiritually. They're doubting what they grew up believing. They're wondering if God and his word is truly good, and, and, and they're being tempted by the allure of sin, and they're, they're doubting whether holiness and obedience is really worth it. People like that are easy targets for false teachers. If you have friends like that, don't judge them. Don't be harsh with them. Have mercy and minister to their souls. Second, Jude says, save those who are falling under the influence of false teaching by snatching them out of the fire. So here we're talking about those who are starting to stray from the faith. Uh, We're talking about those who are entertaining false teaching. They're podcasting the messages of false teachers. This this is for, for, for your friends who are rethinking the Bible's clear teaching on controversial issues, especially those uh, in our day uh, on ones that are dealing with sexual ethics, dealing with things like gender identity. These are passages that have deep roots in the history of faithful biblical interpretation 
only to now be reinterpreted and modified by false teachers in maybe the last, what, like 50 years. So with the doubters in the first group, be gentle in mercy. But if someone is falling into a burning pit of fire, a gentle tug on the elbow won't do. Sometimes love necessitates you grabbing them by the shoulders and you snatching them back to safety. So that means a stronger word of warning may be necessary in the case for these, the second group of people. Now third, John, uh, Jude has in mind those who are already under the influence of false teachers. If, you're, if, you, if, if they're still here in the church, then, then, then you're to show mercy as you seek to confront and call them to repentance, but you are to do so with fear. Be careful that you don't get burned yourself and be influenced for evil by the ones that you are trying to. To restore, and that's why we have to go back to our first responsibility to keep ourselves in the love of God. But notice how Jude doesn't leave us with just that command. I love how he ends his book with a promise, and it's found in that beautiful doxology in verses 24 to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The command is to keep yourself in God's love, but the promise is that God will keep you. As you contend for the faith, as you try to snatch people out of the fire, remember that God ultimately will preserve and protect his sheep. No one can take them from his hands. God will ultimately keep his people from stumbling and abandoning the faith. And so if you are one of his, just know that the Son of God will present you blameless, without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish, like a bride in all her splendor on that last day. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for that promise. That promise is our hope. That promise is what we hold on to. In Jesus' name, amen.